Welcome to the Finding Freedom podcast. I'm your host, Liz McComish. Just like a seed holds all the knowledge it needs to grow into the plant it was destined to be, I believe you hold all the wisdom within you to create the most amazing life. Join me and my special guests as we explore the path back into your innate wisdom and teach you how to harness it. This is your life to live your way. Welcome to the podcast today. I have Sarah Rustach with me again, which I'm so excited about. So welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me again. I look forward to our chats. <laughs> yes, so do I. And last time, just to catch everyone up to speed, last time we were talking about um, alcohol because you're a great area drinking coach. And we're talking about the effect it has on your body. And we started to get into the spiritual realm and we'd got so far down the podcast that I said, well, we're going to have to actually come back and do another one when we start really going into the way alcohol affects our body, our connection to soul, spirit, our pathway in this world, and of course, our nervous system regulation. So here we are. Here we are. It's such a juicy, big, deep topic and one that I love talking about. Yay. Would you mind just touching on again what a great area drinking coach is for anyone who didn't hear the last one? Sure. So up until really recently, the conversation around alcohol has been you're an alcoholic or you're not. But what we now know is that lots of people have a dysfunctional relationship with alcohol, but they don't identify as being an alcoholic because most of us consider an alcoholic as someone who has physical dependency on alcohol, someone who drinks in the morning, someone who wakes up with shaking, trembling hands and can't get through a day without booze. Now, you know my story. I stopped drinking four years ago and I didn't identify as any of those things, but I did identify as having a problem with alcohol. Alcohol was my crutch. It was the only way I knew to switch off a busy mind. It was the first thing I turned to when I was stressed or I was angry. I used it to numb uncomfortable emotions. And so I was using it in a really dysfunctional way and drinking well above the recommended units per week. But I was still high functioning. I was running half marathons, raising kids, running a successful business. I was doing all the things, but I also had a a problem with alcohol. And gray area drinking is what we call people in that that kind of um, area where we haven't reached rock bottom with our drinking, but nor Mm. are we take it or leave it drinkers. We are in Mm. what we call the gray area. And it was interesting when I first met you and started to understand more about gray area drinking, how I realized that I was 100% a gray area drinker myself. I'm not anymore, but I, I used to be absolutely using alcohol to suppress emotions or to help me to feel more confident if I was feeling shy or insecure about anything or to alleviate anxiety and depression, etc. So it's it's such an interesting and kind of like quite in your face thing to hear, to go, oh my gosh, of course, because alcohol in our society is seen as like so normal and it's really, life well, feel it's really pushed on us actually. And we know that alcohol is one of the most dangerous drugs. Like you are far better off going down, you know, into like going down a psychedelic pathway than you are having a glass of, of alcohol, which blew my mind when I heard that. It's like alcohol and cigarettes, the worst possible things that we can do for our brain and our bodies and our souls and our, our psyche, etc. yet it's so pushed upon society. Yeah, I read the other day that alcohol kills more people each year than deaths from all prescription drugs and all illegal drugs put together. And yet, right, we're coming up to Mother's Day. Just start watching all of the memes, all of the Mother's Day cards, all of the way that we are advertised and sold that alcohol and wine is self-care. You'll start seeing all these messages coming around. You can buy birth um, Mother's Day cards that say, I'm the reason my mum drinks. They say, um, thanks, mum, for passing me the wine gene. And like all of this stuff that that, that we are sold, that alcohol is self-care, that it's something we need, and yet it's doing so much damage. And don't get me wrong, I fell for it all hook, line, and sinker. You didn't need to tell Mm. me twice when I had two young kids screaming and crying and pulling at my skirt, and, and I was at the end of my tether at the end of the day. You did not have to tell me twice that I deserved that glass of wine. I lapped it up. But the problem is it's highly addictive. We build up tolerance. We need more and more. And before we know it, it's not a glass, it's a bottle. Um, And then we enter that gray area. 
And these things like this, this very subtle marketing that happens where it's using humor and, you know, just get together with the girls for a wine or in fact, putting it as self-care because self-care is becoming quite big now. It's really sneaky almost that they're getting in there that way, isn't it? And it's no accident. Oh, oh, God, no. So in 2000, I think it was 2010, that big, um, and this is um, referenced in quite a few books, um, that the alcohol industry decided that they weren't getting enough sales from women. So they decided to deliberately find ways to start targeting females. Um, And that's when they started changing things like pink gin. Um, You've got wines in the US that are called um, mummy juice. Like, how wrong is that? Um, and so like this has been a deliberate ploy targeting vulnerable people because mums especially young mums with you know it's a very it can well it can be a hugely stressful time so to target vulnerable people in that way is really it's not nice and the problem is liz in the short term it works in the Mm. in the short term alcohol It's a brilliant solution and it and it like there's a brilliant quote in Gabor Mate's book, The Myth of Normal, where he says it's really hard to give up something that almost works. And it yes. almost works, right? It almost works. It's just that we've got the shitty hangover the next day, the anxiety, the headaches, the self-loathing, the regret. But in the moment, in that absolute moment, it works. And we're not stupid. That's why we keep going back and doing it for more, because it's giving yeah. us something in that moment. And the fact that our tolerance builds up to it is another one of those tricks, isn't it? Because if you have one glass and go, oh, I feel better now, and like you said, it almost works, it almost alleviates the anxiety and the overwhelm and everything else that's going on, yet a week later you have to have two glasses to do the same thing, then three glasses to do the same thing. I mean, it's like smoking, you know. I smoked many years ago and the same sort of thing, like you might have one, then you have another, then you have another, then suddenly like you're smoking a lot and it's become an addictive thing. But, but the thing is that our body can adapt so well to what we do to it that I've got many clients who could very easily drink two bottles of wine on a night and get up in the morning, go to the gym and go and do a full day's work. Right? That's how our yeah. body metabolizes it. It learns very quickly how to, 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 to deal with that impact of the alcohol so that we can still function. Um, yeah, it's, it's quite astonishing, the human body. But then over time, what does that do, Sarah? If you are drinking one and a half bottles a, a, a night or a bottle a night? Yeah, so it's, um, and you don't even, the interesting thing is, listen, you don't even have to be drinking a bottle a night. Like some of the facts that I'll share with you now, they are have come from um, scientific studies that show this is people who are drinking two or three glasses a few nights a week. So this is not people that you would categorize as being, you know, alcoholics or anything. What mm. we know is that, they have, um, when we drink alcohol, to counter the impact of the depressant that alcohol is, the brain releases the stress hormone cortisol. So people who drink alcohol regularly and consistently have a higher level of stress in the body than people that don't drink at all. So just their baseline of cortisol and stress on a daily basis is much higher because mm. they're constantly releasing more cortisol in the brain to counter the impact of alcohol. Second thing is that it, um, they now know the neural pathways, it, um, it makes us less open to change. So we become very stuck in, in set ways of doing things. I always say that alcohol kept my world so small because wow. you become very habitual. This is what I do on a Friday. I get my drinks. I go to this girlfriend's house or everyone comes to my house. This is what we do. And then on a Saturday, I recover in the morning and then I start drinking at this time. And, and your world just becomes a ritual and mm. and you don't look outside of that. Um, it's, interest, it's interesting. Yeah, you say that, but it's interesting you say that because habits in terms of our nervous system dysregulation, habits can go either way. They can either be, they can work for us if we create good habits, such as from now on I'm going to make sure I go and connect into nature three times a week, I'm going to meditate. Those sorts of habits are really supportive of us. But quite unconscious habits like rituals in that sense of every Friday I drink and every every I do this and do that can actually prevent us from going into ourselves and discovering more about who we are because every pathway into ourselves is always like a um a gritty bit you know like a bit of a spiky bit (laughs) the ouchy path you know where where (laughs) I know it well (laughs) (laughs) we know with the ouchy bit right 
there's some big thing we're about to move through and our habits can keep us out of the ouchy bits or the crunchy bits and we never then get to actually go in and and develop in a, in a deeper way we stay stuck so it absolutely resonates with what you're saying about alcohol that it shuts us down in that way habitual things like that also shut us down in terms of our growth yeah and that's the thing is when i reflect on my drinking those last five years nothing really changed in my life everything just stayed yeah. the same in the same job that I hated bitching and moaning about the fact that I wanted to do something else but never having the confidence motivation or energy to make any changes drinking regularly going to the gym as a punishment for how much I was drinking constantly on a diet like the, my life was just stayed the same every year in year out and the difference of removing alcohol and this is what I love with the clients yeah. I work with is that you achieve more in one year sober than you will in 10 years drinking. Like, because you just change and you yeah, grow yeah. and you have energy and confidence and self-esteem and you start connecting to your deeper self and asking yourself, well, what do I like doing if I'm not getting pissed all the time? Like, how do I want to spend a Friday night if it's not sat slumped on the sofa drinking wine? What do I want to start being curious about learning or doing or what type of new people do I want to meet? And so your world just starts to open up. And when you do that, when you start to go, what is it that I actually want? Like, what do I love? And who am I in the world? Then at the same time, you need to look at everything you've been doing to suppress that part of you, don't you? And that must be for your women, that must be a, a crucial, a really big moment. And I'm sure there's a lot that comes up with that. Huge amounts, huge amounts, because alcohol, like I said, it has kept us so small, especially women. Mm. So what I find with so many of my women is that there's so much unspoken resentment within us because of, you know, whether it's that we're the one that's running around doing everything for everyone, whether it's that we've been chronic people pleasers. And so we're doing, you know, we're, we're not speaking up and, and standing up for ourselves or, or, or unsuppressed um, anger where we're not kind of voicing our opinion. And so, and they're not nice, comfortable emotions to sit with. So for years, we've been mm. drinking to, to just hide the fact that we're miserable, unhappy. We're not standing up for ourselves and we know it. We're not speaking our truths and deep down, we really know it. And we, but we don't know what to do about it. So we just keep on drinking. So when we remove the alcohol, we then have two choices. And one is to what in the world of sobriety, we call it being a dry drunk, which is you're not drinking but you ain't doing the work on yourself either. And so you're kind of just not facing those things or you do what we call the emotional sobriety work, which is starting to be curious about, so what has alcohol, why have I been drinking? What's it been hiding? Or what have I been numbing from? And how can I start to explore that? Um, and I just watch women just kind of, they're like, um, little flowers that just start to grow and blossom and bloom and they feel comfortable taking up space in this world and putting their thoughts forward and asking for their needs to be met and it's just wonderful. Oh I love that so much Sarah it, it makes me feel so sad when women do get so shut down because there's so much to offer the world and you know talk about like in nervous system regulation like the, the baseline of it is to know where you're at in the world. And to be honest with where you're at, whether you're angry, whether you're sad, whether you're happy, whether you're anxious, whether you're depressed, like whatever you are, you have to start with where you're at in order to then bring into your life what you want to bring into your life or support you in the way that you want to be supported. Because if you don't know where you're at, you can't actually do any of that. No. You have to be able to go, I am this way right now. I'm angry right now. What's it about? And then how do I move forward with this? Or I'm anxious. What is going on for me? And how do I support myself? And so once again, alcohol keeps us out of that, of being able to ever go any yeah. deeper into ourselves. Yeah. And not, not only that, but like we bring in to this world our own soul pathway, like where we're, what we're going to bring to this world. Everyone has a unique blueprint, basically, or fingerprint, soul print, that they're going to bring something into this world. So if we don't even know who we are, we can't bring that in. No. And so you have millions of people living unfulfilled lives, never reaching their potential because they've been dumbed down with something that's been sold to them as the answer to all of life's problems. And, and that's yeah. the hardest thing, right? And so it's when we start to recognize that alcohol has, 
in, I, I do a lot of parts work. So start, you know, Richard Schwartz's yeah. book, No Bad Parts. And he says that for so many of us, alcohol has been like a firefighter. It's like the little guy that comes in with the hose every time there's a fire and puts it out. And so if we think about the fire as being, I'm lonely, I'm angry, I'm stressed, I'm mm. hormonal, I'm whatever I am. And whenever we have that sensation, we don't know what it's about. We don't even ask what it's about. We just get the firefighter, which is the bottle of wine, and we just drink. And so we never, ever get to know ourselves. We never get to know our triggers. We never get to know, well, why has that made me angry? Or if I'm feeling mm. lonely, but I'm surrounded by people, what's going on here? Why do I why don't I have the deep, authentic connection that I'm craving? But if we never ask ourselves those questions, we can't ever truly get to move forward, to grow, to develop, or to know our true, authentic selves. How do your ladies go with first feeling um, those sensations of different emotions and feelings moving through their body? It's really hard. Mm. It's really hard um, because you're just on an emotional roller coaster. You, you, there'll be a lot of tears. There can be a lot of grief. Um, there yeah. can be, and then one minute you're kind of like, oh my God, I hate the world. Everything is utterly awful. And the next, <laughs> like, and then within literally seconds, you can be like, oh my God, look at those butterflies. This is just the, I am so lucky to be alive today. My life is amazing. And be, you are so dysregulated and you're, you've been relying on alcohol yeah. to be feeding your neurotransmitters and, and having such an impact on the brain for so long that I, I shared the other day with my group, it takes 72 hours for alcohol to leave the system and it takes two years for your neurotransmitters to rebalance. Oh two my years. gosh, Sarah. So that's like dopamine. It takes 14 months on average for someone who's been a consistent drinker for their dopamine levels to even out after constantly drinking because alcohol provides such a hard punch to those dopamine areas. Like GABA, it takes up to two years and GABA is the neurotransmitter that's responsible for us feeling calm and relaxed. So if we have become deficient in GABA, which most of my clients have, and that's why I send them all to you to get the nervous system support, <laughs> then we're going to be feeling yeah. stressed and anxious. And the biggest thing that my clients look for is well, what are the ways that I manage stress and anxiety if I'm not using alcohol anymore? But then the irony of all of it is they notice when they stop using alcohol, they feel less stressed and anxious really quickly because alcohol's actually been exacerbating it. My gosh, so addictive. It's like yeah. methamphetamine. It takes your brain, so I'm told, I don't know a lot about it, but I've been told by a fellow colleague that it can take 12 months for your brain to restore itself, if it can, after using methamphetamine. Is it the same with alcohol? Are there some people who actually never get to restore their brain to how it was before? I think it depends on the severity um, because yeah. we've got to remember it's not just about the neurotransmitters. If you've reached very, very significant physical dependent use on alcohol and you have to have medical support to come off it, then it's going to be a long path of, of, of recovery. But it absolutely can be done. You look at the work Gabor Mate does and you look at some of the people that he's worked with um, mm. and it's incredible, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a beautiful man. And so are there many stats that we can get hold of that talk about like the use of alcohol globally? Is there a one in two people or a one in three people or something like that? Do you know? Oh, I don't know globally. I know um, I have got those. I don't have them on me now, but I did read something really interesting um, that said that the advertising spend of big alcohol in 2023 is set to be $6 billion. That's how much the alcohol companies will be spending in um, selling their products to us in um, in the sneaky way that they do. Um, and, and like I said to you before, the number of people dying from alcohol-related um, deaths and injuries is, um, is more than all prescription drugs and illegal drugs put together. Tell me, like last time we touched on very briefly on what happened with alcohol during COVID. So I know that there were 30,000 ambulance call outs last year, just in Victoria, that were alcohol related. And that the number of um, assaults and domestic violence cases that were alcohol related increased significantly during COVID. 
Um, mm. They also know that the number of 95% um, of all violent crimes on college campuses, um, this is across America, involves the use of alcohol. And 90, did you say did you say 95%? 95%. Wow. Right? Um, and this is something that I find really interesting that you'll find interesting. Research shows that 75% of people who've experienced violence or any kind of abuse in childhood engage in problematic drinking. Oh, yeah. 75%. Well, you know, um, you were saying before about how the alcohol like keeps us out of our body, right? So it just dumbs everything down so we don't feel what's going on inside our body. One of the um, things about nervous system dysregulation is that we become so terrified of the sensations that we're experiencing in our body. Now, what happens when we're children is that we have sensations that push up through the brainstem and that go into our limbic system, which is the emotional part of our brain, where we can actually ask for help. So let's say we're hungry. It's a sensation in our body. And we experience that hunger. It comes up, comes through the limbic system. We either we ask to be fed, and if we don't get fed, then we go through a series of emotional responses. Like we might go through anger, then grief and despair and fear and, and so on. And then our we construct like a perception of the world depending on how our needs were met or weren't met. So if we have a lot of dysregulation as a child, you can imagine that those sensations that push up are terrifying. Because yeah. if we get a hunger sensation pushing up and it didn't get met properly, then we went through that those barrage of really difficult emotions, we connect those sensations to all those difficult emotions. So if we had a lot of stuff going on as a child, our inner world, our sensations are going to feel like our skin crawling, like we want to get away from them. The paradox of that is that our sensations are the language of our body. It's the language that our, that our brain understands, right? It's the language of our body. And to connect back into our body is our body is our, our soul space. It's a representation of our soul. So to connect back in, we need to go through the sensations. Yet our emotional centers and our meaning-making part of our brain, the neocortex, have made up all these sort of stories about how terrifying our sensations actually are because at that time they were. So if we're then drinking and trying, because we're trying to numb those sensations down, which is totally understandable because those sensations were, as a child, they were overwhelming, 100% overwhelming, horrendous, disempowering because you didn't, you're not, a, you're not an adult, you can't sort your own world out. But then as an adult, we experience those sensations as if we were still a child. And one of the key things to do is to be able to, oh, see, the alarm system. Because that's what the amygdala in our brain does, it's the alarm. It goes, <laughs> and so we experience these things that happen in our world that are coming through the perception of what happened when we were a child. And as an adult, we're like, our whole system and our body, our nervous system's going, it's the same thing all over again. This is yeah. not good for me which is why we're drinking in the first place. So yeah. we can kind of, we can numb all of that down because it's too much. But this is what I tell all of my clients. I'll say to them that the fear of what's underneath when you're an adult is always greater than what's underneath because you're now an adult and you actually have more coping mechanisms and you're actually able to make decisions for yourself. So if you can be supported to start to go into what's underneath, then you can start to heal because totally. when you can... When you can feel the sensations underneath in a way that, yes, you're coming to triggers, of course, but when you can manage that, your sensations underneath will also bring you into joy, inspiration, love. They all come from the same place. So if you numb down one aspect, like the anger, the irritation, the fear, you're numbing down the others as well. They're all yeah. in the same place. Totally. Totally. There's a study, I don't know if you've come across um, the Adverse Childhood Experience Study, which yes. was done in 1995, and they're now saying that any person, they've done enough research to know that has four or more of these ACEs, and there's about 12 or 15 altogether, mm. and they are events that would have happened in childhood. And it could be things like bullying, it could be parents divorcing, it could be simply growing up in a family where there were lots of kids and you just don't, didn't really get seen that much and didn't really get the attention and um, emotional needs met that, that we needed as children. And if we identify as having four or more, 
then the likelihood of us developing alcohol use disorder is something like 80%. Like it's significant because we've wow. got the problem and, and, and the reason, and it could be anything, it could be other things like, you know, smoking pot would probably do the same thing and snorting coke. But the problem we've got is that alcohol is something that is celebrated and pushed on us. It's legal. And if anything, we are we are ridiculed for not consuming it. And so you've got this thing that is an addictive drug that numbs us from feeling and for mm. anyone that's got it, which is probably most of the population, right, Liz, when you and I in the work yes. we do, when you start to go and people sit there and go, but I don't have trauma, yeah. I wasn't abused and I didn't live in a war zone. And it's like, you didn't have to. You could have had some kid at school that just constantly made you feel like shit for a year. And that would have just been stored in your body, right? All of this stuff that we haven't worked through and we haven't identified because we've always been told trauma is simply, oh, you were abused or you witnessed violence or you lived in a war zone. But it's so much more yeah. than that, right? Yeah, the A study, the, the questionnaires can actually be, or the questions can be quite confronting because, yeah. as you say, when you look at it, you go, oh, I have a few of those. <laughs> and I don't really know anyone who doesn't have, no. who doesn't have probably four of them at least and, and possibly more. And you're spot on. You don't have to have been, have grown up in a war-torn country to have things that lead to nervous system dysregulation. So nervous system dysregulation is literally from trauma, but trauma is literally something that you, where you had had no power and you couldn't resolve it. So we all have things where we go into stress, but then we come out of it. We might have someone that helps us out of it. We might be able to get out of it ourselves. That's not trauma. It's when we actually get stuck in a certain place and we can't come out of it and no one supported us and we couldn't get ourselves out of it. And you're right, that can be the kid down the road stole my bike. And it depends on your your makeup as a person. Like some people are more sensitive to certain things, and some people are less sensitive to things. But it, it, you can have you could have um, had a broken arm, and not be been able to participate in school camp. And then when you got back to school, everyone was talking about it, and you felt so left out, and it was something that etched itself in your nervous system. And then that can show up again later on in your life as when you feel left out. It's this unbearable feeling in your body. So remember, it's the sensations. That, that feel unbearable and the meaning we make of them. So if we feel that unbearable sensation coming up, which is like, I feel like I'm alone or I feel like I'm left out, that's when we go, I want to drink. Whereas the pathway into healing is to go, wow, that's unbearable. I feel left out and it's unbearable what's going on for me. And once you go through that pathway, that's where you heal that and a whole new level of wisdom opens up because the beautiful thing about trauma is that, when we when we go through it, we heal it, it becomes wisdom. And we have more, our heart has more empathy. We are able to hold space for yeah. others in a much more beautiful way. Yeah, that makes so much sense. But there's so much, what I find is that the most common question that I get asked or the statement that gets made with my ladies when they remove alcohol and I start saying, okay, you've done my 30-day program. You're feeling like, hey, I feel pretty good. I don't want to go back to drinking. And you have to make that decision. Am I going to start doing some of this healing work? And the most common statement will always be, I'm so scared of what's mm. underneath. And, and I think you've explained that beautifully, that the, the fear is worse than what's actually there, right? Because the fact yes. is we've just been blocking it for so long. We've made it out into this like monster. But in actual yeah. fact, it's not. It's still just us and our experiences, right? And when we experienced whatever it was that created that trauma or that nervous system dysregulation, we were disempowered in that moment. So a, a, like a hallmark of trauma is that there was some level of disempowerment. We could not get agency over the situation. And so... Where that, but that disempowerment does not exist where we are now. It existed back then, mm. unless we're still in the trauma. That's different. But if, if it happened back then, we're now not there anymore. So a huge part of my work is teaching people that you're not actually there anymore. You're not there anymore. But also, we can work with it in a way that we are loving towards ourselves and we titrate it. So I teach that in my nervous system regulation course about how to start to how to start to just touch into those parts, the really crunchy parts, without getting lost in them. You can touch into them, but then you can support yourself back out of them. And every time you do that, it's like if you've got a, um, let's say it's a bottle of, of Coke and you shake it, shake it, shake it, shake it, shake it, shake it. If I was to take the top off, it would just go everywhere. 
And that's what it's like if we just go, right, I'm just going to get that trauma and pull it out and get and deal with it, right? It's like, and that's, and that's what happens when we're triggered. And that's possibly what your ladies are talking about without having the words for it, that when you get triggered, it's like someone takes the lid off and it just flies yeah. everywhere. And we, we all know what that's like. And then we feel all the yeah. shame and the cringe afterwards of like, how did I get so triggered, right? So the work is in going, like I'm doing a tiny bit, shh, and the next tiny bit, shh, and the next bit. We never just take the whole lid off at once. So we get to the point where we can go, ah, the pressure's all gone. By the time yeah. we take the lid off, there's not that amount of pressure in it anymore. Yeah. Totally, totally. That makes so much sense. And that's why everyone needs a Liz in their life. To to, you need to like just multiply yourself by a billion and then the world will be a happy place, right? So that you can come and just oh gently take all those lids off very, very slowly. Um, but yeah, no, people need to know this because it is doable. It's not, It's it, you don't have to... I think also we've been through a time where that massive catharsis became part of the therapy work. And it doesn't have to be like that. It can be so gentle and so loving. And in fact, what I find with people is if we move quite slowly, they get more out of it than if we go, right, you're going in for yeah. all, we're getting this shit out of here. We just lovingly and slowly because the boots and all is where the trauma came from. It was overpowering for us. But the gentleness is a completely different way to start to experience ourselves. Yeah, totally. And I'm sure you teach your ladies that when they're coming off, you know, when they're not drinking, like to be loving to themselves and to be kind to themselves because that's the opposite of of trying to numb ourselves down. Yeah, and it's just starting to, you know, I get my ladies to do the mirror exercise and just to be able to start looking themselves in the mirror before they go to bed and go, well, look at you, another day without drinking. Look how far you've come. I'm so proud of yeah. you. Like just to start building that connection to self. Yeah. I never used to look at myself in the mirror. Like I, yeah. do you know what I mean? I was so disconnected to myself when I was drinking that I didn't, yeah, it was just wasn't something I did. I'll tell you a really good tip for that as well is that when we are developing that part of our nervous system or the ventral vagus nerve, so that part of our nervous system that helps us to um, connect and to love and to have intimacy and so on, we connect that in relationship with our primary caregiver. So the way that we responded to as a baby and a child builds that. But it doesn't mean that if we've if it hasn't been built well, then we can't fix it later because we actually can. That's, that's no problem. But one of the ways to work with that is that, say, if your women are looking in the mirror and it's really like quite confronting for them because they're not drinking and they probably haven't looked at themselves in that way for a very long time. An animal like a dog or a cat has that same limbic system that we do, that same emotional center. And we can start to heal our attachment wounds, but also to titrate the experience. Like I was talking about before to titrate it by we can have our pet next to us and we can look in the mirror just even for 30 seconds and then turn around and look at our animal, which probably more a dog is all the, always the unconditional love because cats can be a bit conditional, but, you know. <laughs> my cat, I ain't looking at my cat. My cat's lucky, lucky it gets fed. No, I'll take my dog any day. <laughs> yeah, dogs tend to be more loving, but, you know, everyone's different. And so then to look and then to titrate, so like that, to just open a tiny bit, to turn around and look at this source of love, let's say it's your dog because the dog's so loving, and to look into their eyes and let yourself, immerse yourself in that love and then come back to the mirror again and then back to the dog and then back to the mirror. So that's a way that we start to titrate those difficult emotions. And we can do it, in fact, in anything. If we're having, if we're struggling with something, to titrate with love yeah yeah it's it's a new way of doing things that's what all of this is right it's it's Mm. removing alcohol and you know they say in the alcohol world well in our sobriety world that when you remove alcohol you resort to having the emotional age that you were when you started drinking because 
you pretty much haven't dealt with anything since then. And I was 14 yeah. and that was a, you know, there's a hell of a lot of adults in 14 year old bodies walking around who've got a hell of a lot of emotional maturity that needs to happen because we haven't learned how to sit with emotions. We haven't learned how to healthily process emotions. Um, mm. And I think the next generation are getting taught so much more of that. But for you and I in the age of, of us and the women I work with, that was just not talked about for us growing up. It was kind of like you've got a roof over your head and a bed to sleep in and food on the table. What do you mean you're sad that you didn't get invited to Mary's birthday party? Get over it. You know, and so we just didn't have that emotional way of processing. I'm feeling rejected. I'm feeling left out. I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling lonely. Those emotions were just never labeled and never ever were we given the tools to process them and so that's the biggest part of this work right yeah and it's it's so sad isn't it because when we can go through those emotions we we get so much more insight and depth and we're able to also clear things that have created dysregulation in us you know um i had a lot of uh early trauma in my life actually a lot of sexual abuse and um when I had my first, well, obviously I had a lot of things that were going on for me during my life in terms of substance use and all the rest of it that I was trying to self-medicate and trying to escape from myself the whole time. But when I was, when I had my first baby, because, and this can happen for women, you give birth to your first baby and because of the incredible stuff that you're doing and what's happening with your second chakra and your first chakra, which is all about your sexuality and intimacy and stability in the world, it opens all of that up and it can all come back up for you, which is exactly what happened to me. And it was, and I had postnatal depression after my first child because everything had come back. And, but that's when I started to go and actually do the real work that I'd needed to do for a long time, which I just sort of pushed, pushed aside. What was really interesting is that my son turned 16, my firstborn turned 16. And the day that he turned 16 was a day of grief, like, I could not remember having experienced before. It was absolutely unbelievable. I had to cancel everything and just go into this well of grief that was in my body and allow it to come out. And I'm not kidding. It went on for hours and hours and hours. And it was a grief that I felt like my whole body was just melting into the earth. And I felt like it was never going to end, but it did. It ended. And when it ended about 24 hours later, I came out of it going, feeling like a weight had been lifted off my shoulders and like, wow, that was 16 years of really deep work, really, really deep work. But I felt like I had more inspiration that came in after that and more more love, you know, for my children and more, I felt more grateful for what my children have brought to me and how I was triggered into, into healing and more grateful for actually everything that's happened in my life to turn me into the person that I am now. So that's why grief is like this, all of our emotions, you know, are just like anger, for example, will show us that someone stepped over our boundaries and anger is such a motivating force that we can reset who we are in the world. Like, actually, this is what I want from my life. I don't want that from my life. I want this from my life. If we can harness it in a regulated way and use that to drive us, then it's incredible when it's pushed down, when we're using whatever drinking or whatever we are, we, we can to push it down. That's when it flies out in really unhealthy ways. And at the other end of the, the spectrum is what you're talking about, the violence, the, um, the, the murders, like all that. That's, that's horrific dysregulation coming out and expressing itself in the world and off mostly fueled by alcohol. Yeah, yeah. But it's like that most of us are not, choosing to be that way right like yes there's there's no. psychopaths out there but most people that that make these you know in the moment mistakes they're just being so inherently triggered in that moment by just such pain that comes from the past like you look at yeah. the statistics of people you know that end up in prison for example I mean that's just I could talk for hours about that but you know like that they the, the type of life that they had that they had no opportunity mm um and and no support and yeah. no role modeling for them and so it's it's also about going it's our responsibility to to as as humans to be able to start going okay I'm going to own my stuff and I'm going to be, be able to look at it and I think that the work that you and I do yeah. is so powerful in 
empowering people to do that because we we all think that it's it's scary and we're going to be like rocking on a therapist's floor for hours on end crying and not being able to cope with life but it's it's not that if no, anything it's, it's empowering like I had a session yeah. with my therapist last week and 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 there was an emotional moment of reflecting we've done some imagery work from me when I was younger and um and he said to me afterwards how do you feel and I said I feel really sad that this was my experience. I feel really sad that I had to go through that because it makes me wonder who I would have been without that. And he let me sit with that. But then he said to me, but also Sarah, look at who you are because of that. And, and, you know, and so of course there's sadness with some of the experiences that I had and, and the way that I felt, but there's also just acceptance and, and pride for the person I've been able to become and the experiences I've had as a result of the resilience I had to build and the coping strategies that I had to build. They're not all bad, right? No, they're not all bad. And and it's the thing is that when we can connect back in like that, we really find our our sole purpose. Because, you know, trauma and dysregulation, the, the shit that goes down in our lives, when we work with it, it can it it, it helps us to blossom. It, it, it can become our greatest strength. And I'm not talking about, you know, hanging our hat on it and going, that is my, that is who I am in the world. Like that is me because it's actually not you, but it's a part of the facilitation of growth that you had that turned you into who you are. And I 100% get that because I can also look back at my life and go, who would I have been? What would I have achieved if I hadn't have gone through what I've gone through? But if I hadn't have gone through what I've gone through, I wouldn't be here now doing the work that I do, which is so soul fulfilling for me. And you wouldn't be doing the work you're doing, which is so needed in the world. So there's, I think there's this, yeah, well, I know there is, there's a soul path that trauma, trauma can throw us off it. But when we go back and heal ourselves, it brings us straight back to our soul path. Yeah. And when we're on our soul path, Everything makes sense, even though it doesn't necessarily make sense in terms of the sense we normally make of the world. It makes sense if we feel it. It feels right. Yeah. And this is the thing. So I'll tell you, just before I quit drinking for good, it was 2018 and I was drunk in the south of France with some girlfriends. And I remember just crying. So on paper, I had the perfect job. I worked whatever hours I wanted. I made really good money. I was pretty successful. Um, There was no reason in the world for me to even consider anything else but I was sat there and I was crying to my friend and I was just like I feel so unfulfilled I feel so lost I feel so out of alignment with who I'm meant to be I feel like I've got potential for all of this other stuff and I just knew in me that there was something else that was my calling and that staying doing what I was doing was never ever going to give me that and so and I still didn't know when I first removed alcohol but what I was able to do when I removed the alcohol was start to go right what are my values what do I value in life and then I realized that alcohol kept me nowhere near my values it moved me away from my values it was like what do I get fulfillment from and fulfillment for me comes from bringing women together it comes from helping women find their voice it's it's you know I'm, I'm a feminist at heart I truly am and it's and it's allowing women to step up and and take up and feel that they can take up space in the world and they can own their shit and, and be who they want to be and so it was actually there was no way if I'd have carried on drinking that I would have ever found my soul path because you can't and that is mm. the beauty of this work is you remove alcohol and I've got clients who've gone back to uni to study you know xyz I've got yeah. clients who've, who've gone back to horse riding and they've set up jam making businesses and they've gone back to amateur dramatics and they're on stage every weekend and all the rest of it because alcohol just keeps us so disconnected to our soul that how can we yeah. ever know what we love or what we want to do and that is just the the wonder of, of this work um is 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 doing discovering what's my soul telling me what does she want me to be doing now yeah 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 and because we know that like that soul path is a felt sense. It's not something that we plan. No. It feels, it feels right. So if you're feeling, you know, if you're listening to this and you're feeling like you're not on your path and you're feeling like you're not in the flow, then you're disconnected from your soul. And the thing is that that when we're in that soul space, it doesn't mean that nothing happens in our lives because difficult times always come. Sure. Always. We all There are always things that come up. But if you're in your soul path, if you're in that flow, you can manage. It's like a, it weathers all the storms because you know who you are and you know what you're doing here. So that's your baseline. You always come back to that. 
If you don't know that, it's like you're a ship at sea with no anchor. You just totally. get swept up, in the, swept up in the storms all the time. Totally. And, and there are so many people that live their entire life in that way. Yeah, I know. And I guess then really the alcohol helps them to just numb out that feeling of being totally. tumbled, tumbled, tumbled. But you're still being tumbled. You don't have your anchor down. You're still getting tumbled around in life. And, you know, you get to the end of your life and that's probably the, the biggest tragedy. Totally. And that's why I say to everyone, removing removing alcohol is not the the golden ticket in the Willy Wonka show of going, right, this is going to solve all of your problems in life. But give yourself a chance to take a yeah. break from it and be able to start connecting to your true authentic self and start seeing what she has to say to see if you get more of an inkling as to what your path is in life because you cannot connect to your true authentic self if you're drinking most nights. Yeah. Let's talk about the physical effects that alcohol has, alcohol has on you, Sarah. So there's a few. Um, it destroys our gut health, which is where we make our neurotransmitters. So it's yeah. the number one cause of leaky gut. Um, and it, um, it kills the good bacteria um, and feeds the bad bacteria. So we do not have a place um, that is fostering good neurotransmitter um, growth and development. So 90% of serotonin is made in the gut. Serotonin is our hormone, happy hormone that gives us an increased sense of well-being. Yeah. So if we can't, if we're not producing that, we're going to be feeling shit. And so, of course, then we're going to be craving more alcohol simply because we're feeling down all the time. So we're feeling shit. And I'll just tell you as well that that's where the seed of our intuition is. So we're instantly, like if we're doing that, we're cutting off from our intuition straight away. And our intuition guides us in so many ways as to what the right path is, what the wrong path is, who to move towards, who to move away from. So we don't have our intuition on board. We're creating continuous dysregulation and continuous trauma in our lives. Yeah. One of the first things I do with my clients, if, if they know that they're on this path of healing and they don't want to go back to alcohol for a while, is I get them working with a functional medicine doctor or a naturopath to start mm. really, really healing the gut because it's so important. You and I know so much about, yeah. you know, like um, intuition, etc. The second thing that I, um, so I'm studying um, with a menopause doctor in New Zealand at the moment to become a coach and, and be able to support women through menopause. Wendy? Well. Yes. Wendy? Yeah. She's amazing. Yeah. I know. Anyone who's... Anyone who's listening to this, perimenopause, menopause, postmenopause, Wendy Sweet is amazing. She yeah. is incredible. So I've just joined her um, uh, credited training to be a um, Wendy accredited menopause coach. So Yay! that's so exciting. <laughs> and something I've learned from her just really recently, and this is the thing that astounds me, is how much I always continue to learn no matter how long I've been on this path. And I'm nearly four years alcohol free. Um, is that for women, once we get to our late 30s um, and we hit those menopause years, our liver volume starts to shrink. And this can shrink by up to 40%. So wow. we... Is there, a, is there a reason, sorry, Sarah, is there a re like when you say up to 40%, is there any like indicative factors that lead to 40% or maybe so it's 30%? One, it's one to 2% per year after we mm. get into those menopause years. Um, and so... Wow. It, and some people go into those perimenopause years um, at the age of 35. So even by 45, they could have lost 20% volume of their liver. We can't afford to lose volume of our liver if we're drinking alcohol, because not only does our liver have to metabolize alcohol, it's also metabolizing caffeine and the stress hormones and estrogen and fatty foods and sugar and, mm. and, and all the rest of it. And so alcohol... Um, plays such a big part in in liver function and if our liver is having to constantly metabolize alcohol it doesn't get a chance to get to estrogen because it would always prioritize an external substance over an internal substance so if it's got to choose between alcohol and estrogen it will always choose alcohol because it's a foreign substance in the body but if our liver is constantly metabolizing alcohol it never gets a chance to get to estrogen and what happens is we then get a buildup of estrogen where the estrogen goes into the liver. It can't be fully um, detoxed. And so it gets dumped back into the body in an altered form because the liver is just congested. And that's where hormone related cancers come from. 
And so that's why there is such a strong link between alcohol and breast cancer. So they're now saying Australia, wow. one in five. I wonder also what that the estrogen does to us in, in other ways because I know that, you know, moving through the perimenopause and the menopause pathway, in terms of trauma, what will show up for us in our body will point to traumas that we haven't actually yet worked through or the significant traumas we had the, the part of the, our body that, that they are connected to will be the most affected when we go through a developmental stage such as perimenopause or, or menopause. So we have all these different developmental stages in our lives. So even getting married, if you get married, is a developmental stage. And so what happens when you get married is it's a it's a it's like a window where everything opens up and things will rise to the surface to be dealt with. So if you've got intimacy issues or you've got um, family stuff going on or you've got insecurity, it'll all come up and like so there's a spotlight on it. And so with perimenopause and menopause, obviously there's the physical part that we get the spotlight put on our physicalities. And also it's massive for women in terms of moving forward into embracing that wisdom and moving out of the, the child-rearing phase and, you know, losing periods. It's massive psychologically as well. But physiologically, you will show up, the way that you're really affected, will, you can always link that back to earlier traumas that you've had. So for me, like moving through um, the perimenopause stage, and I mean, I don't know where I am at it, but I haven't had a period for probably about six months. So I must be getting close to like not having one, but I know it can like linger on for ages. My, my thing was I didn't really have, the symptoms haven't been, a problemat- haven't been problematic for me, except I suddenly started getting like back-to-back UTIs. Right. Now, I've had sexual trauma when I was younger. So you can see my body is saying to me, we've still got work to do here. We're still trying to clear this out. Mm-hmm. So I could go, right, well, what, what can I do to try and, like, push that away? I'm, and I'm not saying don't use any medical support that you need because that's just part of the bigger picture. But look at the big picture. Like, what's happened for me in my lifetime to my body that that's my particular thing that's really coming up for me? What's happening? Am I getting a lot of hot flushes? Heat is always to do with anger. Have I got a lot of suppressed anger in my system? Do I need to actually work through anger? Your body is trying to shake off all this stuff that is still apparent in your psychology and in your emotional makeup. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then the other um, symptoms of estrogen dominance, which is what we get as a result of the alcohol constantly being metabolized by the liver, is fibroids, fibroids. really heavy periods and um, polycystic ovaries um, and all of those like can, um, big like clotting lots of clotting um, in our menstrual cycles things like that is is an impact of, of having that estrogen dominance and then the other thing that happens that I think makes it just such a shit show for women I'm sorry excuse my language but you know no, what I'm like it's like this has been a very open podcast today let's keep going <laughs> When we get to our late 30s, we, we, we produce less progesterone. Like our progesterone levels just drop. And progesterone mm. is the hormone that's responsible for us in the second stage of our cycle. It's meant to be the stage when we're pregnant. And so we retreat, we withdraw, we feel calm. We just want to stay home. We don't want to go and do as much. It's like the body's protective hormone. And so because we produce less of this from our late 30s onwards, we naturally feel more stressed and anxious because we're not producing mm. as much progesterone. So then we have this like this cycle where you've got women who are less you know, they, they, they're less calm, they've got more anxiety, they've got more stress, they're having trouble sleeping. At this stage in our lives, from late 30s onwards, we're usually juggling working, kids, the pressure to be running a home, we might have elderly parents, we need to want to be a good wife, we want to be a good friend, we want to be a good sister, we've got pressure to look good, to be making home-cooked meals, like the pressure is relentless. And mm-hmm. we struggle to take time for ourselves. We're feeling stressed because we're not producing progesterone. And again, wine is being sold to us everywhere we turn. Oh, just go and have a glass of wine and then you'll be all right. And so we're doing yeah. that. But it's the worst thing we can do. And that's why our hangovers start getting worse as we get older. Because our body just simply cannot metabolize alcohol as we get older as it did when we were younger. And you know that whole estrogen, like as the estrogen starts to shift and we start to move into the perimenopause years, like before that, it's obviously very protective because we are, you know, we may have babies, we might not, but our body's primed for it. So the estrogen is helping to protect us. So we actually can go out and push ourselves in a number of ways and, and our body can be okay with that. But yes, as we get older, the lesson in it 
physiologically is when we can't handle hangover so well, where we need, we can't handle stress as well because we always, we don't have all the progesterone on board. The spiritual lesson is it's actually time now to withdraw a bit and to, and to come into wisdom because when, because when we talk about the yin and the yang of life, having children and being young is very yang. It's very like, if you think of the yang as the sun and yin as the moon, for example, so in those very yang times, we have all the hormones to support us to be very yang in nature. When we move into the yin time, that's when our traumas come up to be processed and released so we can step into wisdom and come into a more, more quiet time in our life because we're meant to be connecting back into spirit and working with what our soul came here to do. And then we can get yeah. to the end of our lives and feel fulfilled with our, with our lives. And I think if you, if you think now like, if I was to die now, like how would I feel about dying now? It's a really important thing to consider because I would, if I had to die now, I'd actually be okay with dying. I, that Dying doesn't actually scare me. It used to, but it doesn't scare me anymore. I would just not want to leave people behind. That's yeah. the only fear I have around, around dying now. And if you can get to that place in your life, that's where you want to be because then you can really live. You can't, you know, someone said to me, when I was very young, actually, I was at uni, and he was only about 19, and so was I, and it blew my mind. And he said, he said, just said in passing, we were in IT, an IT unit together, and he just said, yeah, you cannot live until you accept the fact that you're going to die. And I was like, and it stuck with me forever. Yeah. yeah. This guy's name was Micah. I've never seen him since, but it really stuck with me. And I thought, it's so true, isn't it? Because when we can actually take that on board and we – we embrace that properly, then we can live. But we also have in every day we have death, don't we, Sarah? So, you know, when we when we we leave certain things behind, when we address certain things in ourselves, but also like even through alcohol, I bet you see that through these challenges that women come in and a part of them dies, which is that connection to alcohol. But then what's what's next? Yeah, but there has to be a grieving stage because many of us grieve. It's if you know if we've been drinking for 20, 30, 40 years it's been a big part of our lives. Like that person that we become mm. when we drink is is a very much our identity. So there's a lot mm. of, we have to grieve as well that we're letting go of that and we're moving into a different stage and that can bring up sadness um, because it's the end of a relationship and the way mm. that we would grieve the loss of a boyfriend, the loss of a friendship, we are grieving something because alcohol has been present for us for so long. And so it's not, there's a, there's a lot of emotions to process in, in the journey of removing alcohol. What does alcohol do to our brain? So we know lots of different things, but the biggest impact is the neurotransmitter um, mm -hmm. disruption of both dopamine. Um, we start to get these huge dopamine hits every time we drink alcohol. The, the dopamine reward center of the brain is not designed to get what I call punches, like these dopamine mm. punches it's designed to get tickles. So if you think about the difference between a punch and a tickle, right? Um, and when we get punches all the time, we actually start killing off some of the dopamine receptors to the point where we come to only expect the punches and we stop even noticing any of the tickles in our life. And so mm. the things that might have once brought us a moment of joy, intimacy with a partner, laughing with your children, going and watching a sunset like we just don't even care about those things anymore because we start to become fixated on getting that dopamine punch when are we getting the next punch and so the biggest thing that we can start doing when we remove alcohol is we've got to make sure that we're we're embracing those tickles and we're starting to get them and it's incredible we have a stage in um in sobriety called the pink cloud and it's when our dopamine responders are starting to try and sort themselves out know that they know they know they're not getting these punches anymore and the brain starts getting flooded with dopamine because it's just working out how to balance itself now that it's not having alcohol and so we have this pink cloud moment and it's just like, oh my God, it is the best time ever <laughs> because it's just like, oh, look at you the clouds <laughs> and look at how green the grass is today. And so, like, but this just goes to show what alcohol has been doing to us. Like I said before, mm. it takes two years for our neurotransmitters to rebalance after we've removed alcohol. So it, it's, there's, there's a big impact on our GABA, on our serotonin and, um, on our dopamine responders and so it's starting to know like most of my clients are super deficient 
in these core neurotransmitters. So when I work with them, we take the three-pronged approach of how we're going to start rebuilding them, and that's through nutrition, supplements, and lifestyle. So if we are taken away from the tickles and we're primed for the punch, then we're also being primed to be very influenced by advertising, aren't we? Because if we're constantly looking for something outside ourselves to give us that dopamine punch, then to buy that new thing or to have that new car or to have those clothes or all those things outside of us, right? Would you say that's a yeah. logical yeah. pathway that it would and go that, on? And that's the difference between pleasure and happiness, right? Is pleasure is the, the, the feeling you get from those things that light up the dopamine reward center. So whether it be mm -hmm. shopping, whether it be gambling, whether it be pornography, cocaine, like whatever it might be, pleasure, we never have enough of it. We want more, mm. we want more, we want more. Happiness, yeah. I've got exactly what I need. I need nothing else. And yeah. that's what I teach yeah. my clients is the difference. And happiness is more subtle. It's yeah. not, you know, it's not as in your face as, the, as pleasure and dopamine punches. But when we yeah. know that, we can start to really notice actually happiness I'd much rather be with happiness than with those those punches, the withdrawal, the, the craving, the punch, the withdrawal, the craving. Like it's it's not a great cycle to be in with addiction. Whereas happiness, you have just got exactly what you want and need, and you want nothing more. And that that pleasure, like that, completely disconnects us from spirit and our ability to manifest. You know, again, because what we do is it's part of our, our midbrain, which is our third eye. So this is the piercing point for our third eye, but our third eye is actually in our midbrain. So if you sort of go like there and then you go in a couple of inches and what happens with our third eye is that we can see the world, right? And the all the advertising and all the way that we're encouraged to find dopamine punches outside ourselves condition us to look outside ourselves for that. Whereas what manifestation is all about is being able to turn our sight inward and find out what it is we really want from the world, what we want from our lives, and then to be able to create, create our inner image and then move towards our inner image to create it in the external world. Yeah. Whereas what's happening is we're getting these images fed to us all the time about what we yeah. need, and it's drowning out our ability to be able to manifest what our dreams are because we don't totally. even know what they are. So it has this, totally. it has this terrible effect on, totally. on our ability to actually to find that happiness, that inner happiness and those tickles. Yeah. So let's all go start looking for those tickles. <laughs> and our throat. I think let's finish on our throat and our heart. Our throat. There must be a lot of the, lot that, that um, alcohol affects physically in terms of our throat. Oh, it's one of the leading um, contributors to throat and mouth cancer. Right. Okay. So our throat, obviously, Vishuddha Chakra, is where we're able to speak our truth. And it's... Okay, it's connected to not lying, but not not in such a great way. It's bigger, greatest soul purpose of our throat chakra is about us speaking the truth of our soul. So when I can connect into my soul and speak the truth of it, then I'm in total alignment with myself. And yes. for women especially, we've had over centuries our, our voice being shut down. So alcohol if is shutting down our connection to our soul, our connection to being able to look within as to what we really want and then create that in our world and it's shutting down our voice all at the same time was well, creating cancer in our throat chakra totally totally and heart should we finish with heart sarah yeah i mean look I, I don't have the biology in terms of what alcohol is doing to our heart but i do know that it's number one of the number one causes of heart disease and stroke so um it's doing something right so I can't tell you on a biological level what it's doing but it's definitely doing something and um, heart disease and stroke is four times higher in women when it's alcohol related than it is men so in in um, Chinese medicine our heart is the seat of our Shen spirit and so our circulatory system moves that through our body so when we when we're drinking we're disconnecting from our ability to live in our own spirit in our own energy so if you're feeling you know down depressed anxious etc and then we once again it just that that catastrophic approach of having to look outside ourselves for what's going to make us what's going to bring us pleasure and you know alcohol is cutting down that connection into where our ability for our heart to really pump that life force through our entire being and for us to really feel proper deep 
deep love, isn't it? Because our heart is yeah. meant to, our heart's meant to feel love. It's also meant to feel grief when we lose yeah. something. So if we're cutting off from it, yeah. we never get to feel that, do we? No. Like so you, no wonder you, yeah. it causes heart disease. No wonder, you know. Yeah. yeah. No wonder and, our hearts are being used what's meant to be used for. For sure, absolutely. And they say, you know, like when we numb the bad stuff, we're numbing the good stuff. Yes, we and are. So you know, like, and, and so it's it's no wonder. And like, I didn't have any connection to my heart or soul when I was drinking. Well, Sarah, that makes me want to cry. No, but I celebrate this. I just feel so lucky, Liz. I feel so lucky. Yeah, I know. I but, know. I just it just makes me sad that there are so many people wandering around feeling very disconnected, and yeah. that they are not only are they supported to do that through advertising but it's pushed upon them and a lot of them feel there's no way out and I find that it's uh, yeah it makes me feel really sad because you got one life totally totally but I think that I didn't know what I didn't know either at the time I thought yeah my life's great I just get drunk all the time you know like I just didn't know any different it's only from doing this work that I can sit here and just have moments of such utter gratitude that I found this other way of doing life and this other way of being me. And Sarah, I'm so grateful. When is your next challenge? I encourage anyone to do one of Sarah's challenges because you can jump in there and you can put your foot in the water. You don't have to jump in and just swim upstream by yourself and decide to completely give up alcohol. You can. This is a beautiful doorway into it where you can be coached, you can learn, you'll be supported as well, and you'll be helped. So I do have one starting um, in a couple of days um, for April, um, but the next one will be July. And so, um, and there's a 30 day program on my website that people can buy at any point. But if anyone listens to this and it's already in April and you want to join, you still can join. Just message me because um, you'll just be able to play catch up on a couple of videos. Yay. Thank you so much, Sarah. You're so welcome. I really appreciate it. I love our chats too. (laughs) They're my favourite. (laughs) Yay. Thank you, Liz. Lots of love, Sarah. Thank you.